Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the, de- the depth uh, with which you have portrayed these three characters. We don't find here stereotypes, but complicated individuals. Because we know that we are such ourselves. We pray that we might learn from their example and might follow after the wisdom that you have given to us in Christ Jesus. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. If I can uh, speak briefly to uh, the kids, young adults, those who are, okay, if you're still under a parent's roof, this question is for you. When is it most difficult to honor your father and mother? When is it most difficult to obey? Okay, so think about it in your mind. Peter Stahl asked us this question in a middle school class a couple of weeks ago, and I've been thinking about it. The instinctive answer from all of the middle schoolers at that time is it's most difficult, right? It's most difficult to obey, most difficult to honor when your parents want you to do something that you don't want to do. Okay, I want to play a computer game, but my parents want me to go outside for some weird reason. You know, that, that's when it's most difficult, right? And Peter had the... He had his eye on the ball. He knew it was, there's actually a situation that is even more difficult than your parents or your boss or your uh, pastor or your elder or the person next to you in the pew telling you to do something you don't want to do. There's something even more difficult than that, and that is when that person is wrong. It's one thing when they're right. It's even more difficult when they're in the wrong. It is so much more difficult to keep one's peace, to keep one's anger bottled up, to, to avoid lashing out when the other person is totally in the wrong, legitimately in the wrong. We have in our passage this morning an example of this precise kind of situation. David is in the right, Nabal is in the wrong, and David can't handle it. David, who just the previous chapter had had Saul in the power of his hands, could have destroyed the one who was making war against him and let Saul go. Now David can't handle it. David, who in the next chapter is going to let Saul go again after cutting the hem of his robe, remember that story? David, when he is confronted by this fool, Nabal, can't keep his cool. He loses it. What do we have to learn from this passage? We're going to look at two fools and one wise woman. Two fools and one wise woman, all of whom are going to demonstrate to us that the peace which we have received in Jesus Christ is, is powerful enough, enables us to make peace with those around us even when they are wrong, not just when they are when we're suffering, not just when they're difficult to deal with, but when they're just actively unjust against us, we still have the peace of Christ. Two fools and a wise woman. Our first fool, Nabal, the first thing that we learn about Nabal is that he is a very rich man. Nabal leads with his possession. He is up front about the stuff that he has. He is in the business of collecting wealth and enjoying that wealth in a manner that is blind to those around him. We get a very vivid picture of the kind 
of man that Nabal is. Now there is wealth under the blessing of God and there's wealth under the curse of God. But what we have in Nabal is the latter. We have a man who spends his life collecting wealth and enjoying that wealth without vision, without the ability to see what's around him, without the ability, we can put it this way, to let go of that which he has. How can we describe Nabal's folly? I actually think the passage that we read earlier that Eric read for us in James 3 is a wonderful description of the kind of thing that folly does. You know, in that passage, you start out, if you flip in your bulletin or flip into James 3, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his work in the meekness of wisdom. And then typical of a wisdom teacher, James then switches to the antithesis of wisdom. So he's saying, be wise. And now he switches to the antithesis of wisdom. What happens if you are not wise? What is the opposite of wisdom? And you're expecting then folly. And so here's what wise people do. Here's what foolish people do. But he skips a step, right? He, he actually takes the next step. The chief act of folly is, verse 14, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. These are the opposite antithetical attitudes that can characterize us. Wisdom on the one hand, selfish ambition on the other. And what Nabal is clearly demonstrating for us in this passage is the folly of selfish ambition. The folly of possession for the sake of simply enjoying my possessions. He is blinded to everything else. And we have to be careful there because selfish ambition, selfishness, envy, jealousy, those are are sins that we can point out and we can spot very clearly. But there there are some sins that we are participants of that like to hide, that are very subtle, that like to scurry away and don't present themselves to us. Selfish ambition, envy, jealousy, these are things that are easy to spot in others. It is easy to see somebody else's selfish ambition. It is easy to see somebody else's self-centeredness. And usually it's precisely at that point when we are receiving the bad things that come from someone else's selfish ambition that we can't see our own. My ambition is just ambition. It's, it's righteous ambition. It's not selfish ambition. So when sins hide themselves, it's a good thing to put yourself in a suspicious state of mind. And your suspicion should be directed mainly at yourself. Uh, okay, I don't struggle with selfish ambition. That's, um, that's an SEP. That's somebody else's problem. That's not something that I deal with. But uh, be suspicious of that line of thought. And one helpful mental exercise might be just take out the word selfish and leave ambition. Are you an ambitious person? Do you consider, I mean, ambition is one of those things that we actually encourage. We want ambitious kids. Kids these days have no ambition. They have no drive. 
We want people with drive and self-sufficiency to succeed in life. You need to have ambition. The problem is that a good majority of the time, ambition is just plain old selfish ambition. What we mean by that is not excel so that those around you are blessed, but excel so that you can survive, excel so that you can live a comfortable life, excel so that I can be successful and important and influential and those kinds. Usually, selfish ambition is hiding right behind ambition. We need to spot this in ourselves because James, as James puts it, James puts it theologically, but we see the outworking of it in graphic detail in our passage. What does selfish ambition, jealousy, what do these things result in? They result in every manner of strife and foolishness, war. It is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. It causes disorder and every vile practice. This is the end of that ambition. This is where that heads. We see that in Nabal, our fool set before us in Scripture. He is enjoying his stuff. He is unable to give to David. And maybe David isn't in the right. You know, it's possible that David is a thug here. It's probably not the case. But there is some debate about that. Is David asking for bribe money, for protection money? Is David the guy who's kind of walking by, uh, you know, the thug who's kind of walking by the store and says, eh, you don't want anything to happen to this store, do you? That's, Nabal might, there might be a logic to Nabal's thinking. Whether David is righteous in his request to Nabal or unrighteous, Nabal at least finds it an unreasonable suggestion. It is beyond his duty. It is beyond the requirement of hospitality. But his action is still foolish. He is unable to see. He's blinded by his stuff. He is unable to offer hospitality. A big deal, as Eric has been reminding us several times throughout Exodus and, and also Genesis, this is a big deal to be inhospitable to a guest in the ancient world. Your home is open. And David David clings to his, uh, excuse me, Nabal clings to his possessions so tightly that the door can only be closed, locked, and barred. He will not let David in, even though David has been kind and protected, as the servants of Nabal witnessed to, testify to, protected Nabal's things. So Nabal is our first fool. His guard is up. He is unable to respond kindly to David. But David, whether or not he's right or wrong in the first part of this story, he is most certainly wrong in the second. David does not take this rejection well. David, our hero of the faith, David, our righteous king, in this moment behaves in a manner unrighteous, unworthy of his character, unworthy of his position as the future king of Israel. And if you doubt that, how could David, the hero of the faith, be a sinner? Two things for you to remember. First, David himself confesses this. Okay? When Abigail intercedes, 
on behalf of on behalf of Nabal and in front of David. David says, "Blessed be you, Abigail, for preventing me from the shedding of blood." David admits that what the course of action that he had chosen, vengeance and salvation for himself, being the agent of his own redemption, that that course of action was foolish and sinful. Okay? And the second thing that you should remember is that David actually does exactly this in just a couple of chapters. This is Bathsheba before Bathsheba was even a name that David knew. David wants something, and this is the problem. If you are in a position of power, if you have authority over others, if you are in a position to be able to take that which you want, then you are at risk of a particularly difficult kind of sin to resist. You take what you want. You abuse your power. Every Sunday that I preach in the morning, we have the... uh, cop day or whatever this, whatever this is that goes on on Sundays once a year. I seem to always draw the lucky straw there. This is a particularly difficult thing. David misuses his power here and uses it to take that which he wants. So what's the nature of David's folly? So uh, Nabal's folly is this selfish ambition David, uh, David is foolish in a slightly different way. David's actually, in this point in the story, kind of in an awkward position. He knows that someday he will be king, but he's not king yet. Okay? He is going to inherit the throne, but he's not yet there. And if you've ever been in that kind of position, you know that you are going to be the CEO or the, the boss, but you're not there yet, then you know kind of the difficult situation that David's in. Engagement is a lot like that. You are promising to one another, right, when you're engaged. You're promising to one another. You're anticipating the wedding. But there's benefits that you cannot take now as a result of the fact that you are not married. David is in precisely this situation. Who is higher on the totem pole? Nabal, the rich man, or David, at this point, still a sheep herder? A general in Saul's army, but a rebel general, as far as Saul is concerned, a traitorous general, and just, in the end, a man like any other. If you're going to think about this well, we need to spend about an hour talking about what it's like to live in an honor-shame culture. We can't obviously do that. So we have two pictures for us of what this looks like. David is perfectly willing to submit to Saul. He's perfectly willing to submit to Saul in the previous chapter and in the next chapter because submitting to Saul is honorable for David. It is to his credit. It is a good thing to submit to those who are over you. We don't think that way. We think, I'm, I owe no one I don't know anyone anything, right? I would submit to no man. We don't have that same honor-shame categories, but it would be shameful for David to obtain the throne the way, uh, the way that was presented to him through raising his hand against Saul. In this situation, David is in a radically different position. It's unclear 
who, to whom honor is due. And notice what Nabal says to David. I don't owe you anything. Who is David, the son of Jesse? I owe you nothing. You are beneath me. You owe me honor, not the other way around. These are two grumpy young men trying to figure out who's more important. And when David's honor is threatened, David, by the way, could consider himself in the right here because he is the heir. He is the king of Israel. He is the one to whom obeisance is due. Something that Abigail recognizes. But these, David's reaction is to take that insult, to take it personally, and as uh, Abigail puts it twice, to save yourself, to justify yourself. Verse 26 Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. What is Abigail saying? David's sin is in being wronged, in being the offended party, in being treated shamefully by the one... Uh, who owes him honor, David takes matters into his own hands, and that is where the sin is. Zephesians says, be angry, but do not sin. When we are wronged, you have to be careful. You can be treated unjustly. You can be treated contemptuously, and the other party may be in the wrong. The question is, what then do I do about it? David's answer is, I'm not going to be treated like a doormat. I'm not going to be treated this way. I don't have to take this. I have the army. David obtains his own vindication, and that is his folly. That's God's job. It is God who vindicates. It is God who asserts justice. It is God who judges, not ourselves. Actually, the Corinthians um, are in a similar situation. If you remember the Corinthians correspondence, what should both Nabal and David have done? Paul gives us very clearly what's going on, uh, what David and Nabal should have done, the course that they should have taken. In Corinth, there's a lot of these internal lawsuits between brothers in Christ. And uh, Paul says, why is this going on? I say this, this is... uh, 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 5, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Here's Paul's alternative, okay? It's not no lawsuits. It's this, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? but you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Paul gives us a really shocking principle. On the hierarchy list of being wronged and loving my brother, loving my brother is higher. It is better to be wronged, defrauded, and keep the peace than it is to seek one's own vindication. 
And there are situations in which this does not pl- apply. There are, ab- there, are, there are situations, for example, in, uh, abuse, of, in, abuse in the home. There are situations where we are legally and ethically obligated to intercede. So this isn't applying to every situation. But in general, our thought process should be, it is better to be at peace with my brother or my sister than to assert my own rights. Give up your rights. Be defrauded. Be wronged. And yet, as we'll see, have the peace of God. Two fools then, but praise God for Abigail, a wise woman who comes alongside, who sees the situation and responds appropriately. How can we think about Abigail's wisdom here. I'd like to suggest three things that Abigail does to demonstrate that she is wise. Looking at James 3, looking at uh, 1 Samuel and the character of that book, what are the, what, how does Abigail defuse this ticking time bomb? Well, the first thing that Abigail does is she sees. She sees what's going on. She sees what's around her. She is able to discern the hearts of these two men and to see the clash that is coming and be perceptive enough to respond to it. Now, if if you're the type of person that is clouded by selfish ambition or anger, what happens is is you're blind. You're unable to see. Ambition clouds our minds. No one is reasonable when they're angry, when they're hot under the collar. That's why uh, when you're in a situation and you're yelling at each other, no one is going to win that fight because reason is out the door. You're not able to see. You're not able to perceive the mind of the other, the mindset of the other person. All you can see is this injustice and the way in which to vindicate yourself. Abigail does not have that problem. She is able... She is free from, those, uh, from, from this unrighteous anger, from selfish ambition, and is able to see then this, what the situation requires. She could have taken another course. She could have gone to Nabal and not David. Nabal, somebody is coming for us. We need to spring a trap. Dave, Nabal has resources. But... Uh, Abigail is able to see the situation in front of her and respond to appropriately to it. And one of the reasons that she is able to do that is because of selflessness. Abigail, this is the second thing we need to see about Abigail's wisdom. Abigail is not bound or blinded by selfish ambition. She acts selflessly. She gives up her own status. She does the exact opposite of of what David does. David says, you are taking status from me, you are taking honor from me, and I will get it back by whatever means necessary. Abigail looks at the same situation with with the same eyes and says, David is about to take status from me. She's about to make, David is about to make Abigail a widow uh, and uh, without help in a man's world, okay? David is going to take status from me, and I will respond by honoring David. And that's what Abigail does. She responds to David's dishonor by honoring him, 
by sub, uh, subjecting to him, uh, herself to him. You see that in the way she, she bows low. She is constantly referring to him as my Lord, referring to his future status as the king of Israel. She's prescient, and she's able to see the situation. And she honors the one to whom honor is due, even though it means her own dishonor or subjugation. What does Abigail do that's wise? She sacrifices for another. The wisdom that comes from above is willing to suffer wrong rather than to, vi- to enjoy vindication. The wisdom that comes from above is a sacrificial wisdom. It results in giving up one's rights. It results in backing down, being willing to be treated like a doormat for the sake of the other one, even the one who is about to wrong you. Love your enemies as yourselves. The third thing that Abigail does is, so she sees, she sacrifices as a result of her selflessness. And the third thing that Abigail does is she sows peace. The result of Abigail's actions is, is not measurable. This could have led to a blood feud that would last for generations. And the reason why we know that that's the case is because later on, it does. David and his own son go at it in these precise terms. It could result in the tearing down of a kingdom But what Abigail does is provide another trajectory, another way, another path. And because of her wisdom and self-sacrifice, the path that she provides is the path of peace. She sows peace. The result of which, what what happens when you sow? The result of sowing peace is that you reap peace. That you get the fruits of peace. She gets a safe home. She gets a kingdom led by a flawed but righteous king, she receives the benefits of peacekeeping, of peacemaking. Abigail's sacrifice is able to prevent this tragedy, which is of benefit not only to her but to the entire kingdom. And David eventually will take on the throne and himself be an agent of peace in this world. We can say with David, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. We can all benefit from Abigail's wisdom. Well, what does this have to do with us? What we need to see is that Abigail is a picture for us. She she demonstrates to us what peacemakers do. And as such, what she eventually demonstrates to us is who Jesus Christ is. Abigail is a picture of of Jesus Christ. We see in Christ the same glorified, even better, even more magnificent actions that Abigail is doing. Jesus is able to see us and perceive us for who we are. He sees through the blindness of our own lives. He sees the sin that motivates us and that is destroying us personally in our lives. He sees the conflict, and he also sees the way through it. He sees the path of reconciliation. 
Abigail. She sees the path of reconciliation, and that path requires her to intercede as a sacrifice. It requires her to sacrifice her own ends in order to benefit both David and Nabal, her potential abusers. How does uh, Abigail do that? By considering the needs of others before herself. Jesus does the same thing dramatically, climactically, at the cross. The cross is Jesus pursuing our interests rather than his own, or maybe better, pursuing his interests of kingship by being a benefit first to us. Without the cross, there would be no reconciliation. What Jesus does at the cross is he reconciles us to our God. There is a division. There is a conflict. There is a war that we are about to lose. But what, Dave, what Jesus does is he offers himself as the sacrifice in order to bring peace. His righteousness becomes our peace. And the result is, the result of all this, is that Jesus sows peace among us. This is why the Bible, this is why the New Testament is full of encouragement to us as a body, to be one body, to seek the peace of the church. In fact, it's so important that it's one of the vows that we take when you become a member of the church. You seek the purity and peace of the church. You study it. It is such a delight to you that you are willing to spend extra time to study how to make peace within the church, to see the divisions that exist among us, to, to perceive what is causing, what selfish ambition or anger or jealousy or envy is causing that division, to, and then to solve the problem by offering yourself as a sacrifice putting aside your own needs and pursuing the needs of the one next to you. Jesus creates a kingdom characterized by peace, by reconciliation, by forgiveness, because he himself creates peace between us and God. Paul calls this the ministry of reconciliation. There's a big debate as to what does Paul mean? Does he mean that does Paul... Uh, a minister of reconciliation in the sense that he proclaims the reconciliation from God to us? Or is he a minister of reconciliation insofar as he works hard to make sure that the body is one body? Well, he's doing this in 1 Corinthians. He calls himself that in 2 Corinthians. And his mission is both. He is both preaching peace from God and mediating peace within the body. Those two things go hand in hand. And they go hand in hand because what Jesus Christ accomplished in his death and resurrection is is the sowing of peace among us so that we are empowered to pursue peace with one another. Let's pray.